0: Hello everybody. I'm Dr. Jean Latting, founder and president of Leading Consciously. Our company helps you increase your ability to grow and thrive in a multicultural environment. Today, we're having a, a provocative conversation with Elena Redstone. A friend of mine told me about her And I jumped on the opportunity to invite her to this podcast for a discussion. Elena is. Dr. Redstone is a sociologist professor from the University of Illinois and the author of a forthcoming book called The Certainty Trap. In a nutshell. The certainty trap is what happens when people hold different fixed positions and then try to talk with one another. I was immediately intrigued that here at last where someone could tell us how to navigate these polarized discussions that are happening in the workplace, social gatherings, and at the dinner table and tearing us apart. So here is Dr. Redstone. Okay. Hello, everybody. I am totally thrilled to bring to you Alana Redstone, who has a very impressive CV. She is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, pronounced like the drink. And she has a new book out, on, well, first, her original book is called The Certainty Trap, and that's why she's here. I'll say more about that in a minute. And she has a new book out on unassailable ideas, how unwritten rules and social media shape discourse in America higher education. So, Virginia, I mean, Virginia, Alana, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Just to be clear, the, the Unassailable Ideas book came out in, um, in the fall of 2020. And The Certainty Trap is a manuscript that is not yet published. Um, the, there was the piece in the Washington Post. The book is largely written and is not yet, but is not out yet. Okay.
0: Well, I, The Certainty Trap is what, what lured me here. Yep. That, right. It made yes. me want to invite you. So thank you for the correction. So before we jump into it, I'd like to know something about you. Uh, we focus on racial and social justice so, and multiculturalism in multicultural environments. And I let me just clarify, I use the word culture beyond race, gender, and all of that stuff. I think uh, different religions have their own cultures. Different classrooms have their own cultures. So how do you deal with people whose background and foundations are different? So with that in mind, say a little bit about how you grew up and what led you to the work you're doing now.
1: Um, Okay, that's a big question. It's a great big question. Um, It is a great big question. Um, I'm trying to think of the most concise way to answer it. I am grew up in western Massachusetts um, in Amherst um, which is if people have heard of it it's a college town mm-hmm. um, and went to I went did my undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire in Durham New Hampshire and then went to and then I spent in my, after college I spent I was fortunate enough that I was able to spend a lot of time traveling um partly because well college was a lot cheaper <laughs> in the in the early 90s and so I was I was in the very fortunate position of not having student loans when I graduated. Right. Um, and so, yeah, which was really like an incredible just gift. And so it it gave me the flexibility to travel. Um, and so part of, so I did that a lot in my twenties before I went back to graduate school in demography and sociology at the university of Pennsylvania, I would say you know, two of the things, my work is certainly influenced, my work now is certainly influenced by my experiences just traveling the world. Um, one of the things, one of the kind of general lessons I would say that I took from that those experiences um, is that the world is sort of full of people just trying to kind of figure out, figure things out the best they can. Just
0: trying um, to make it.
1: Just trying to figure it out. Um, and the other thing so the la- so in the late 90s one of the the last thing i well yeah one of the last sort of overseas things that i did before i went into graduate school was i was a peace corps volunteer um, in togo ah! and so yeah, and so one of the things that i realized or that sort of got me thinking when i was a peace corps volunteer was that you know the things that we care about the most tend to be morally and ethically complex. So even something like the Peace Corps, um, which you know I went and I finished my service, which is a little over two years. and um, but even something like that raised questions like, and I'm, I don't mean to suggest I'm unique in this regard. There are lots of volunteers struggle with these questions, like, you know, Are we doing more harm than good? Are we propping up a corrupt government? Are we creating, are we fostering dependence? dependency? All of these kinds of questions, I don't have the answer to them. I still don't. I didn't then and I don't now. Um, But just understanding that it's actually complicated. Like you can come down on a lot of different, reasonable people could come down on different sides of those questions. Um, And so that's sort of how I think about my work now, which is just fundamentally from a place of, the things we care about this the complex social problems that that animate our daily lives and our sort of motivation to make the world a better place are morally and ethically complex
0: okay so before we go further what's the certainty trap think
1: about it the certainty trap is fundamentally understanding the idea that when we Judge harshly or demonize somebody who disagrees, and it's usually on contentious issues, usually and by contentious issues, I mean issues that touch you know, things like race, gender, identity, various forms of identity, inequality, intent, ideas about harm, freedom, all of these things that tend to be very contentious. Um, that when we judge harshly and demonize, that comes from some value, belief, or principle that we're holding on to as certain or inviolable. You want to build strong communities. You want to be able to communicate across ideological divides. You want to reduce political polarization. You want to build trust in institutions. All of these things that we care about are reasons to just sort of to do stay out of the certainty trap. So one piece of that is fundamentally sort of the realization that the world we live in is uncertain whether we kind of choose to recognize it or not it is on un- so I mean in a simple example like if I take I don't have a glass on my table here but if I have if I had a glass right just a glass of water you can imagine if I dropped it on the floor if I had a tile floor um, and I dropped it on the floor there's some chance that it wouldn't break right like I mean it might just land like right on the edge or something and not break that doesn't mean that i'm going to start taking glasses out of my cabinet and dropping them on the floor just to see what happens um but i understand that there's that there is no that there is, that that chance is still there even though it's very even though it's remote so part now what does a glass have to do with you know racism or something so there's a diff, there's a distinction to be made between certainty and the trap right so we treat things as certain like the glass falling on the floor or like you know, this is a phone. Um, And there's some, there is some infinitesimally small probability that we're wrong, right? Like that the world isn't fundamentally what we think it is, um, for all kinds of sort of philosophical reasons. Right. So the, the judgment and the demonization is the part, is the problem that I'm sort of narrowly focused on. So one piece of it is just recognizing that the world is fundamentally uncertain, particularly when we come, when it comes to thinking about causes and solutions to complex social problems. Um, And then the other piece of it is that avoiding the certainty trap, in part, part of it is recognizing uncertainty and part of it is also a commitment to interrogating our own thinking as well as the thinking of other people. And so what that means is a couple of things. It means making sure that we're being very clear and precise in what we're thinking and our assumptions and sort of what our principles are that are that are when we have sort of an, a reaction to something that is we feel outrage or sort of righteous indignation like uh, committing to understanding where that's coming from and naming it out loud okay right so and i, I can give let's, you,
0: let's let's hang on so let's put some people yeah. let's put some people in here
1: sure so John is talking to oh.
0: Mary. Okay. Oh, whatever. Okay. Let's
1: make make it concrete. Sure. Go ahead. Seems, and I'm, to- And I'm deliberately picking this example because it seems absurd. One of the things that was in the news yesterday was the story about the boy who was in Kansas City who was shot in the head after because he rang the wrong doorbell or something like and he so then there was the news was about how the guy the 85 year old man it was charged with the two felony accounts in the boys hospital, right so there's this so there's nothing in that it would be ridiculous to come to that and say you know what we really need here is viewpoint diversity wait, boy, wait on a minute we, what, certain, yeah, yeah. What,
0: you're mean, what you're saying and this is a really critical because it's one of the questions yeah, I yeah, yeah ask you the boy got shot by this guy Yeah, you're saying it would be absurd to think there was something right about that.
1: Yes, I'm saying there's it would be, I think it would be it's hard for me to imagine an argument where someone would come in and say, oh, that's not a gross, you know, like a gross tragedy. Right. I can't. It's hard for me to imagine what that argument would look like. And so my commitment then is to saying, well, why? Why can't I imagine? And again, I recognize that this is sort of an absurd example, right? But my commitment is, well, why why is it that I can't, and I think this will make sense in a second, that I can't imagine any reasonable argument that would suggest that this is anything other than a horrible tragedy? Um, Well, part of it is because my principle might be something like, in a civilized society, people should have a reasonable expectation of safety, right? Like they should be able to have a reasonable expectation that if they happen to ring the wrong doorbell, they're not going to get shot. Right. Period. Like that. Now, if someone wants to argue with me and say like, that is, I think that's, you know, that principle is wrong for reasons, X, Y, and Z. That's fine. Like I'm not sure what that argument would look like in this case, but it means that I I would be willing to hear I mean, it. But just, so when I talk about the certainty trap, it doesn't mean saying like in a case of this boy in the case of this boy, it doesn't mean saying that there's a way to justify it or minimize it or or sort of that's not what it is at all. It's but it is about being clear about what it is. Okay, what is I I feel outraged about it. Why? Why do I? And so putting words to that um, has can also it, it's, a, it's an also an important step in sort of clarifying our own thinking. Does that make sense?
0: OK, yeah, I got lost for a minute. So let me. let's. OK. See. Boy, rings the doorbell, gets shot. I hear. Yeah. About now, I think any. Caring, reasonable person is going to think that's a tragedy but I'm allowing for the possibility that there is somebody out there with a different worldview who may say, well, it's not necessarily because he could go to, he could, he could ascend to a higher place or maybe his place. I mean, I'm I'm really being ridiculous. Yeah.
1: You're really stretching. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, He's he's the boy extended his life on this planet and he chose to die by gunshot to illustrate something to the world. So I have some crazy, made-up reason in my head why it's okay. Thereby avoiding the certainty trap. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say you're actually making it, um, you're actually sort of kind of making it even a harder standard than I would in the sense that, In the sense that like, I don't know that you necessarily, so let me say a couple of things. One is I don't know, like for my own thinking about just to stick with this example for a minute. I don't know that I feel fully committed to trying to come up with, I mean, maybe I, it's a reasonable point. Like maybe I should try and come up with my own, which you did come up with my own thought experiment about what kind of story could someone spin that would put a different, you know, lens on this. I don't, that's, but the other thing I would say is that one of the things about the certainty trap that is important to realize is that there are always going to be issues that people want to take off the table. Like, so for example, like, you know, I don't think my neighbor is a Holocaust denier, but let's say that, let's just say for the sake of the argument that she was like, do I have to talk to my Holocaust denier neighbor and see, and like dig into that what she thinks um again i don't think she actually is but like that i may not that may be like a hard line for me sometimes we all we're all going to have hard lines i think the point is to recognize that the more things we take off the table as a collective the worse off we are it's not at the individual level we all yes there are certain things that we just can't they're just too sensitive they're too sore they're whatever but understanding that in the aggregate as a society, the more things we take off the table, the worse off we are.
0: Okay, by take off the table, the phrase I use is undiscussable. Yeah, same thing. So what you're saying is, the more things that we classify as undiscussable, the worse we are as a society. Right. Or world, because, Mm -hmm. because why?
1: because what happens when you don't discuss things is that people are people are thinking about them anyway and i think that that when we don't discuss things they actually we give them more power um over the conversation than when we than when we do and so i don't think you're not solving anything by not discussing something you are responding to sort of an emotional need an understandable emotional need right to to protect yourself, which is very, I'm going to use the word understandable again. It's very understandable. Things It doesn't go away. The things that you, you know, not talking about things doesn't change what people are thinking on the inside. Um, it doesn't, you know, it changes, it changes social norms in a way that can create resentment, right? Among people who feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this thing, like, right? it can also i think i do think that there's a world where taking things off the table can push people further to extremes right. that's social science has validated that whatever right. suppressed emerges someplace else and it, it right i mean right because people will seek out if i want to say you know if i say let's say i just did this event on friday night about affirmative action and let's say you know let's say i'm opposed to affirmative action and let's say that somebody says, "Well, that's undiscussable, or that's an undiscussable position," and then I decide that I'm going to go find some other group of people who are opposed to affirmative action and who don't judge me for it. Well, Perfect. those people might have more extreme views than I had in the first place.
0: Perfect.
1: Does it yeah. right? Like it's. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's not clear what you're winning by by doing that. So I don't. I guess I'm. I'm a. I ultimately, I suppose. I think direct engagement is is better. Although I understand that I understand that pe- that people have at a, at an individual level, we all have limits.
0: Yes. Okay, that's good. So we have limits, but to make things undiscussable means we're driving that opposition someplace else to protect our hurt feelings. And I have a thing about protecting our hurt feelings. I think in. in this podcast is for leaders, and I tell yeah. all the time: you want to be a leader, get prepared to get your feelings hurt. You can't always. Sure. You can't. Yeah. You can't lead and then think that my delicate feelings won't be hurt. Right. Okay. okay. So, but I want to nail down the certainty trap. I want to make sure that sure. the certainty trap is believing I'm right, and therefore I shut down discussion of alternative viewpoints. Is that?
1: Yeah, let me let me let me give you a metaphor. So and here's he, one way to think about it. When we when we sort of look out at the world and we look at social problems and we look at social interactions. Yeah, so right, if you were here standing next to me and we both had our corrective lenses on and we look out the window and I say look do you see the bird on the fence over there? You know and you say oh yeah yeah and I see the bird on the fence and we're sort of seeing the same thing. Right? So if the glass is curved, it distorts what's in front of it. And so the idea when it comes to the certainty trap is that all certainty curves the glass. And so the way around that is fundamentally either to recognize the uncertainty or, and this is the second part of what I was saying, like in the example of the boy who was shot, to name it and say, I believe that in a civilized society, somebody should have, people should have a reasonable expectation of safety so that when they ring the right etc so they ring the wrong doorbell they're not that is i don't have to let that go that might be a certainty that i'm holding on to but i can still name it and then my glass right if my mirror is still curved because i'm holding on to that but that's fine because i've because i've put words to it where we really end up running into trouble is when we sort of are insisting on something and we're saying and we're insisting and we're fa- and we fail to recognize our own lens, our own spin that we're putting on it, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. Okay. So we have 30 plus skills in leading consciously. Okay. And one of the skills is openness, making your assumptions transparent. Mm-hmm. And another one is testing your assumptions, making sure mm. your assumptions about what the other person is saying are accurate. Right. And I think with the curved mirror, what when you say naming the curved mirror, you mean stating your explicit assumptions,
1: right? I think it's making your thing. But it's interesting, because as I'm, I'm sure you know, like we're not in the habit of doing that. But particularly in the space that I'm in, and in con- very controversial and heated issues, we are not in the habit of doing that. Right. Um, and so it's a, it's a question of sort of. Both understanding that that's a a thing that we need to do, that we need to be committed to, and then kind of getting in the habit of of understanding how to do it.
0: Okay. So I want to, again, make sure the certainty trap is clear, that definition. It is assuming, having certainty about our assumptions, not naming them. Mm-hmm. and assuming anyone who acts contrary to our noble assumptions is an idiot is that the essence of it or mal- well,
1: either an idiot either an idiot or hateful yes
0: yeah and hateful okay yeah so yep. that's in a bo- bottom line that's the cert fear trap. i think that's a pretty good summary okay to get out of it then we name it here are my assumptions Correct?
1: We, um, yes, there are multiple ways of getting out of it. Well, that's one of them.
0: One of them, okay. Other ways to get out of it.
1: So one is naming our assumptions and the second part of that piece of it is recognizing that those assumptions, that there are no ideas, principles, values, beliefs, et cetera, that are exempt from it, questioning, criticism, examination. Everything can get examined and questioned. And so once we name something, we open it up for somebody else to come in and question it, right? Whereas they can't do that before we put words to it. So that's one way. The other way I would say is moving from, one way to think about it is from move. if you think of moving from certainty to confidence. So if you think about uh, almost a number line, right? From zero to one, where one is, you know, obviously zero and one indicate certainty, both in the negative or the positive and you can almost say just lop them off right and let's not like given the fundamental uncertainty in what we know about the world let's talk about the there's there's a difference between there's a qualitative difference between 1 and 0.99 and 0.99 and 0.98 um and so right and so understanding that we don't nothing belongs over here right on the endpoints and it's all about and you could have a sort of robust disagreement about what kinds of evidence should move us in one direction or the other is it is it fundamentally sort of you know data driven data driven like right sort of and by data i mean like aggregate data or is it people's lived experiences sort of anecdotal evidence right like how should we think there's a you could have a robust conversation about that but now you're in the realm of confidence and not certainty
0: Okay, uh, my sister who was an attorney used to call what you're saying standards of legitimacy. So yeah. for you to believe this, what evidence, what standard of legitimacy are you using? What's, what are you basing it on? And what could be contrary evidence? Is is that the essence of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, actually I wanted to go, want, there's one other thing, something you just said made me think of. Um, the other piece about naming it, about naming our principles, is that the other thing that naming it does, not only does it open the door for someone else to come in and challenge or question it, but it also forces us to make sure that the language we're using is is in, is being received in the way that we intend it. So, um, um, sorry, your question about, so can you repeat your question about evidence? You, I had got a sidetrack going backward
0: when you were talking about moving from certainty to confidence yes as i'm understanding you and you correct me if i'm wrong certainty is moving from zero certainty is either at zero or a hundred mm-hmm. it's either true or it's not true that's certainty confidence is there's a 99 chance that i'm right that it's right i'm confident I have 99% confidence that I'm right or what I'm saying is accurate or right, but I'm allowing for that 1% to change.
1: I think that's right. It's it's like, it's that, and I mean, it could be smaller than 1%. It's the chance that, going back to what I said in the beginning, it's the chance that I drop that glass on the floor and it doesn't break.
0: Okay. So the question is then, what's going to move me from 100 to 99
1: I think that's a really good question. I think that, um, so the way I do this with students, I'll just give you an example. Um, One of the exercises that I'll do with undergraduates sometimes is I'll say to them, you know, so I'm in a sociology department. We spend a lot of time talking about inequality. We spend a lot of time talking about racism. We spend a lot of time talking about identity. Um, And so one of the things that I'll do with uh, classes sometimes is I'll say, okay, well, let's talk about something like educational inequality, something that people rightly care about. And, and so I'll say, you know, this is at the university of Illinois and I'll say, you, you know, you've all had some degree of educational success, just you're sitting here in this classroom. Like you've had, you know, you all know people who you went to high school with, who didn't go to college or who didn't get into the U of I or whatever. Like you've all had some degree of success just because you're by dint of the fact that you're sitting here. And so I'll say, well, what do you, to what do you owe, to what do you attribute that success? Like just in your own mind, like what do you, to what do you credit your success towards? And they'll say things like, I studied a lot, I went to class, I had a really inspiring <laughs> teacher. Yeah. I, I, I parent, I, you know, my parents were, my parents would have killed me if I didn't get a good grade. My, you know, my school was well-funded. Sometimes you'll get that kind of variety, but that's, those are the kinds of things that they'll say. And I'll say, you know, and if they don't bring it up, I'll say, well, a lot of times in this space, people talk about structural causes, right? They'll talk about structural racism or structural, and let's just set aside for the moment, like what that means and how we would define it. Let's just, we can just bracket that for a moment. So, and then they'll usually sort of say, oh, yep, yep. That makes sense. That too. Um, or the absence of that in their case, um, and so then I'll say, "Can you put these in some kind of rank order in terms of how much you they you think they contributed to your to your educational success? Can you put them like, well, this is number one, and this was number two, and this is number three? Can you rank order these things?" And of course, they can't. I mean, they can't do it. Like, and so, but the point isn't for them to do it. The point is for them to recognize that they can't, and that the uncertainty the sort of what they don't know shapes how they think about the broader conversation about educational inequality. So for example, the next time that you hear someone say, talk about individual, um, individual behaviors and how they relate to educational inequality. Is that person doing that because they're coming from a place of sort of racial resentment if you're talking about educational disparities? What are the different possible explanations? Is there something beyond? Is there something that we're missing? And in that?
0: If I'm following you, you're saying that what you try to get the students to become aware of is what they don't know.
1: At some level, yeah. I mean, let me give you one more short example. Can I do one more short example? Um, So like when one of the things that I'll do in class is I'll say, I'll ask students to kind of bring to class, like, you know, things that they observe out there in the world that they find offensive, off-putting, you know, examples of cancel culture, whatever. And so one, last semester, I did have a student come in. She was of Mexican descent. She had identified, she had referred to herself that way somewhere at some point during the semester. And she was, it was in the middle, it was in, must've been the second week in November. And she was talking, she came to class and she said, and this was in front of the whole class, and she said, that she had gone into Target that weekend. And she was, there was a display, like a plastic, plastic stuff display for El Dia de los Muertos, like the day of the dead in in Mexico. And how she was kind of offended because this plastic display of junk um, was in Target. And it was, it felt kind of demeaning to her. And so my job, when in terms of thinking about getting them to understand what they don't know, my role is not to tell her whether or not she's, too thin skinned or not too thin skinned. What I and what what I see my role as is I'm saying, okay, I get that. You know, let's think about it for a minute. So let's assume that someone comes into Target and they don't know what the day of the dead is. They've never heard of it. And they see this display and maybe they ask the salesperson and they say, what's that? And the person, maybe the person doesn't have that much information, but they say that's for the day of the dead. And then this person walks out of Target and they now have heard of this holiday. That they never heard about before they walked in. So does that matter? Does that change anything? Like, and so you could and then you can run it again. I'm almost done. What if instead of one person, what if it's 50 people? What if it's a hundred people? So like, and I don't know the answer, like, but just to get her to push the limits of her own thinking so that it's not quite so simplified.
0: Okay, so you are also to get out of the certainty trap, you're suggesting that people have to, people could think beyond their immediate gut uh, gut reaction to a phenomenon, simplistic reaction, and to see the complications of it, to see the thing as being bigger and broader than their immediate reflexive reaction.
1: I think that's a great way of putting it, yeah.
0: Okay, and so what you do then is encourage people... Okay, you have your immediate reaction, you have your principles, you have your thoughts. Now, how is it possible that others, what what could be another way of looking at the same thing?
1: Or just a more complicated way of looking at it, yeah, even no if you don't change your mind.
0: Well, that was one of my questions for you about the not changing your mind. Because when I'm reading your readings, there was one yeah. thing you said you don't have to change your mind. Mm. But the rest of the time, the other places that I read, it seemed like be open to changing your mind or possibly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, so I'd have to see kind of what specifically, if, if, I, if I made it sound at some point, like I think people need to change their minds that I certainly didn't mean to. Like, I, I'm not sure. My, what I will tell students and what I'll tell other groups is that I'm not here to change anyone's mind about anything yeah I don't really care. I mean, I can't that sounds callous. i I you can have whatever position you want. What I do care about is whether you can have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you,
0: okay so let's talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of two or three
0: workplaces right now, but people mm-hmm. who think differently they're at war with. yeah. what should happen in that kind of situation?
1: Are these? Um, so just to get a little bit more context, like are these certainties, are these conflicts around contentious issues? Or is they-
0: if uh, Let's take your Day of the Dead example. Sure. Is it racist to put it in, make this plastic display or is it not? That's not the example. That's not a true example. No, yeah,
1: no, no. I get it. No, I, I love it. Like, so okay, so, so, okay, so
0: this ahead. one group says it's definitely racist to have this cheap thing up in Target, denigrating our yeah. our uh sacred holiday. And another group of people saying, Are you kidding? this is an educational tool. And they're at war.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that you just use that as an example. That's great. Um, and I know that it's not the actual example that you're dealing with. Um, you know, I think, so I think, so, okay. So there's two There's two answers. One is more complicated than the other. Sort of the, the simple answer is that like, if you're gonna talk about the target display, ultimately a decision has to be made. Either you put the display up or the display doesn't go up. Like there's no sort of middle ground really, like, like it's sort of halfway up or whatever. Like it's either going up or it's not going up. So somebody has to make a decision. Now there's a separate piece that's about how do we have a conversation about it, and what are the sort of what are the what is the shape of that about before the decision even happens? What does that look like? And my sort of focus is, I can imagine lots of different answers to the question of do you put it up or not? Well, or at least two different answers. Um, the conversation is one that's going to be about a bunch of other things. So including, for instance, what is the role? of intent right like how should we and so like your question about a workplace part of it's going to depend on in that particular workplace do they have or have they put any time into thinking about what kind of culture they want to create when it comes to again, these open inquiry or viewpoint diversity or whatever? Like, have they put any time into thinking yes. about it? We, like, is we that want a value? an
0: anti-racist workplace. If, if they are, both sides agree.
1: We want an anti-racist workplace. I would say, okay, that's what, it's one thing to say that you want an anti-racist workplace. And this is, I don't, we won't, I don't know how much time we'll have to get into this, but like, what does that mean fundamentally? There's a way to think about anti-racism. Like the word anti-racism, it is, it's powerful for a lot of the the words anti-racism. It's powerful for, for, well, for a couple of reasons. One of them being, it sets it up. It sets up a dynamic that says, well, if you have a, if you hesitate, if there's some piece of this that you're not behind and we're calling this anti-racism, then you must be, what, pro-racism? Like you think more racism is a good thing? And that sets up kind of a, when things aren't defined clearly it sets up a dichotomy that makes people feel if they're having questions about it makes people feel resentful it makes people feel like they have to self censor it can make people feel resentful now part of the so part of it would be a question about what does that particular company mean by anti racism one of the ways one of the ways that people talk about and i'm sure i'm not telling you anything you don't already know one of the ways that people talk about anti-racism, and part of this is, I'm coming from a background in sociology, um, is it's about how should we see, when there are different, I'm just trying to think of an example. When there's an interaction between, okay, here's, let me put it this way. When there's an interaction, let's say a workplace interaction between two people, and that, and let's say the two people are of different races. They could be white and black. They could be, you know, whatever. And the people are of different races. And that interaction goes south, right? It just, it, whatever it is, it just doesn't go well. Under what conditions should we assume that that went south because of racism, right? And so anti-racism, at some level, without it, it a lot of times I think where it gets into trouble is it doesn't make clear sort of that there are that some that somebody could come into the, and I know you want to jump in with the question, so I'll stop in a second. Um, it doesn't always make clear that there are there are questions that someone could raise about when intent should matter more than impact, or when it is, when, when we're leaning too much into sort of seeing the world through a racial lens. I, I'm not taking a stand on any of this, right? Like I'm just saying that there yeah. are that that it, it we we lose sometimes the ability to see that actually people could come to different answers on these questions. So, so I'm going to stop. I'm okay. You jump so in. let me just
0: paraphrase what you're saying. You tell me if I got it right. Yeah. you're sure saying that of term like anti-racism doesn't allow for the fact that there are different manifestations in people's minds of what constitutes racism and what doesn't so the target display in one person's mind could be definitely racist and the target to play the same display could be in another person who is firmly firmly anti-racist they could see it as a strong educational tool but the term anti-racist doesn't allow for both possibilities
1: I, th- that is absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. The term anti-racist doesn't it doesn't necessarily allow for both. But I, I think you can actually make a stronger case than that. So if you're going to, let me see. Like let's say. I mean, I, I I hate to use this example because I feel like it's sort of overused. But but I'll but it's it's straightforward. So I'll use it anyway. So, like, if somebody says, you know, so in the world of microaggressions, right, and so there's, you know, if we talk about microaggressions, and again, I, you are probably, in with the work you do in workplaces, you're probably much more well-versed in this than I am, um, but if we talk about microaggressions, we could probably, most people would probably agree, probably not everyone, but most people would probably agree that, like, if microaggressions were really just about statements like, you know, you're really smart for Fill in the blank. Right. Most people would be like, yeah, we don't need that. Like, right. Like, I mean, again, there would be some people that would probably disagree with you, but most people would be on board with like, that's not really okay to say. When you start to get into things like, and this is the example I was going to say, I was saying is sort of overused. I think the most qualified person should get the job or where are you from? Or right, these kinds of things. And you say like, to just stay with the first example, I think the most qualified person should get the job. If you're coming at that from a way of saying, if you're coming at that from a place that says, that's racist, right? It's racist because it's it's not acknowledging, it fails to acknowledge, whatever the argument would be, it fails to acknowledge the real barriers that that members of different groups encounter in terms of success in this in the world, and, you know, et cetera, the, mer- the failures of the meritocracy, et cetera. Um, that's not, it is going to be very hard to simultaneously encourage a culture that fosters viewpoint diversity because you've said that intent doesn't matter. Because let's say, let's say, I say I think the most qualified person should get the job. Oh, go ahead, you jump in.
0: Yes. Yeah, so what you're saying is you're you're trying to say that making a judgment about one what is anti-racist. Has to consider the other the speaker's intent. Is that the point you're making? That if I'm I'm saying the most qualified person should get the job. Yeah, if my intent intent is benign. I'm not making any historical connections. I'm not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm looking at the individuals on the face of it. Two people yeah. in front of me. I'm 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 doing this the yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. I don't know any better. Then to judge me to judge me as racist for making that statement is doing me a disservice.
1: You're very good at putting at summarizing these things. Um, I think that I think I'm just trying to think about like if, about the characterization and if that feels right to me. I think that I would, I think that's largely right. I think I would m- maybe qualify it by saying that. In that particular example, the conversation that hasn't happened, I'm guessing in this hypothetical workplace, is how do we want to handle situations when somebody's feelings bump up against somebody's intent, right? When there's, or when when somebody says this is offensive and somebody says, well, this is just my opinion. And if you're going to always defer to the person's feelings, then you're not, if that's your default, right, you're always gonna defer to the person's feelings, then you're not really going to create a space where that that is open to a diversity of viewpoints. And so I think it's the recognition of sort of navigating that tension on a case-by-case basis.
0: Okay, so let me say what I would say. Yeah. Stronger than what you would say. Okay. The question is: If someone comes to my workplace who endorses the Klan, uh huh, can I allow that person to have a viewpoint?
1: That's a great question. Um, that's a totally fair and great question. So, I have an answer. Like I have it sort of an analytic answer, and then I have a kind of gut answer. <laughs> And they don't necessarily agree with each other. So like on the one hand, you could make the argument and somebody, and I'm not, some of your listeners may think this is nuts, but like, I could imagine you, you could make the argument. And I remember doing this, I've done this with, uh, well, I don't want to derail our conversation, but you can make the argument that says, actually that person, that clan member should be evaluated based on how they interact with people at work. Right? Like, do they, how do they treat people? And I'm, I'm not endorsing this argument necessarily. I'm just putting on a hat. Um, how do they treat people of different races, of different genders, of different backgrounds? Like, how do they actually treat them? Do they treat them with respect? Do they treat them with dignity? Do they, now you might say well, if you're a clan member, then you can't possibly treat them, right? And that may be, but that may be true. But like, let's just say as a thought experiment that you could, right? Like that you could, that you could focus solely on what the person's behavior is at work. Should you? Then the question is, should you, right? Like, should you separate what they're doing outside of work and what they're doing inside of work?
0: And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you. That's yeah my great questions okay fundamental questions so what's the answer to that question
1: the question of should you uh-huh. i don't know my it's a really good question i my analytic answer is gosh we should be able to evaluate that person just on you know what their work like i' sort of that's kind of the there's a part of my brain that answers that way and then there's a part of me that's like nah yeah. Nah, like I don't really wanna you know, I don't wanna hire the the clan member, I don't wanna work next to the clan member, like whatever like I don't wanna have to listen to him um, and I don't know I honestly don't know, I honestly don't know i I mean I guess i i i feel that I feel that tension in myself, and I'm glad I'm not in that position i don't have I don't know that there's an easy answer. I don't know. I can imagine a situation where if somebody wanted to be very, very open-minded, they could, but then you have to like, you, like then you start weighing all these factors. Like, so let's say somebody, you're an employer, you want to be very open-minded. You want to, and you want to say, look, I'm going to give this person the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to let them come on. I'm going to see how they actually work. And let's say you have a mutiny on your hands because nobody wants to work next to the clan member. You have to, that's a factor as well. And so, what do you? How do you sort of like all these different moving parts? How do you think about that? You know, I, that's I don't have an answer. I don't have an easy answer. I mean, I imagine I can guess where most people would end up, but I mean, as a as a thought experiment, I can I, I can see the complexity. So
0: I will tell you: for most of my life, I've had to wrestle with that exact question. The clan, really, the clan member is the extreme example. Yeah. But do I endorse someone, for an example, who endorses the str- Southern strategy for voting and who mm. thinks it, it was a good idea to gerrymand uh, uh, that legislators should p- pick their own voters and that gerrymanding is OK because the legislators were voted for there? Am I now yeah. supposed to cooperate and work with you? on anti-racism or on social policies or what have you, when you're holding a belief that to me fundamentally undermines the very thing we're working on.
1: It reminds me actually, so let's go back for to where we started, like talking about the certainty trap. So let's go let's take the Klan member for example and then go to your voting example. So if you take the Klan member, so if I'm gonna if I'm gonna kind of walk the walk and 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 really like sort of put my principles in action here what i'm saying i could imagine saying like okay what is it about the clan member that you know what is the principle for me that's being violated like i said like i said with the boy who was shot like i said you know in a civilized society we should have a reasonable expectation of safety that cetera. so with the clan member like what is it that's being violated it's i don't I don't know what, I mean, I know sort of like, but I don't like- if a You endorse belief, people like, who let's want say, me and mine endorse, dead. Say it again? You endorse
0: people who want me and mine dead.
1: Right. So like, so let so like, I fundamentally think, and I'm so, like, again, it's one of these sort of absurd examples, but like, let's say that my principle is that I think all lives have equal moral value um, and that we have an obligation to, you know, that everyone should have access to pursue their, their potential and their right, et cetera. So like, let's say, hold on, because I want to get to your voting example. So let's say like, that's my principle that's being violated. So um, the with the, I, I want to say this by
0: principle, you mean yeah. a higher abstraction, you're not adding the heart, the amygdala in there. You're not acting, adding the visceral reaction in what's being. Violated. That's
1: fair. I think that's I think that's right. I think that's I think that's right. I have to think about that, but I think that sounds right to me. okay. um and then with the voting question, like i would I guess I would say, when it comes to the voting question, and I'm not an expert on. I do not pretend to be an expert on sort of like voting policy. I know that it's, I know that it's, I know enough to know that it's a contentious issue, but I don't know the details about legislation and and this and that. So, but if you take something like, you know, you're talking about gerrymandering, take something like, I don't know, would, would voter ID laws be a good example? Yeah, that's a great example. Sure, okay. So So if we use that example, there are people who would say, right? So that voter ID laws are actually about protecting and again I'm just I'm wearing a hat here um about protecting our democracy this is about making sure reducing fraud in 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 elections or minimizing the likelihood that there's fraud etc now you can say I think that's a bunch of bs and I think that that's just trying to I think that's hiding a political strategy that's designed to control electoral outcomes, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's fine. But the certainty trap piece of it is, are you sure? Like, are you, is it possible that someone, in this case for the voter ID laws, supports the voter ID laws actually because they believe that it's a better thing for democracy, is it possible that they're lying and that it's driven by racism? Of course. Is it also possible that they have some other motivation? That would be the question, I think. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so let's go, let's take it a step further, which case you sure. to the quandary I'm in.
1: Uh-huh. Let's assume
0: they have good intent. They know- they, The we'll, person who
1: is opposed to the, the person yes, who wants the voter yes, ID they law? They okay. think
0: uh, we want to protect democracy by enacting these sure. ID laws. Let's assume it's there. And yeah. I believe that that position is part of what is going to undermine the purpose of our organization. Since our organization is about developing a better world or whatever, that belief that they're holding, I think it's naive, ill founded, and they have great intent, but they are ignorant. And it's—I'm not assuming malevolence. I'm assuming ignorance, and it undermines the goal of what we're about as an organization.
1: So, are you talking about an organization? So, I guess I want to make so one question just for clarification: Are you talking about like an organization? You're talking about an organization specifically that is designed whose mission it is to make a better world, like a, to make a better world yes, or something yes, like that. Yes. Okay. So one thing, so a couple of things, a couple of thoughts. One is, and you don't have to agree with any of this, but um, one is, you know, that person who who supports the voter ID laws may also, as you noted, be trying to make a better world, right. right? And so they, so one question is like, what does it mean by to make, like, it's the, it's like the example I gave with, sorry, about evil. Like what, I want less evil in the world. Well, what do you mean by evil? Well, that's not what I mean by evil. What do you mean by a better world? This is the world that I think is better, that's not. So one of it, there's part of it that's about sort of what do you mean by, like I have asked students this question, like I actually, a couple of years ago, I had a a police officer come to, the students asked me to bring in a police officer to come and talk about policing in in the class. Because I don't, what do I know about policing? Nothing. Um, and so I asked, so I did, I had a lieutenant come in and she she was great. She came in and talked and she was very like open. And, but one of the questions I asked, it was at the end of class. And I said something like "Are members of, what was the, no, it was a student question. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember. It was a student who asked the question. The student I think was biracial or she had identified herself as biracial. Um, and she said something like why should we trust you she said to this lieutenant she was very respectful she was very nice but she said why should we she should why should we trust you and the lieutenant was also very like it was very respectful like very it was a very i found it a very interesting conversation and the lieutenant says because that's that is now i'm remembering the lieutenant said she said something like because things are a lot better than they used to be and and she had her examples about what that meant and about you know sort of um systems that the police department had in place to sort of track you know behaviors and things anyway like she had her ideas about what she meant and the student was like what are you nuts like what do you mean by better and so like it was this tent like kind of like what you're saying about a better world like what do you mean by better like what is what is that what is in there about better so that would be one piece that comes to mind, like in what you're saying about this voter ID thing is sort of just just the fuzziness in that world and whose definition should take priority. And the other thing I would say is if you have this, like going back to the certainty trap and I'll stop in a second, what if you're wrong? Right, I guess I would ask the question, maybe, and maybe this is a question for you to reflect upon, although it's also a question for this other person to reflect upon, what if you're wrong? Um, so that's, so I guess that's, I don't know if that's helpful. So what I'm
0: deducing of what you're about is teasing out definitions and asking the question of what if you're wrong and the way to avoid the certainty trap is to just keep digging, digging, digging (laughs) in terms of clarifying definitions and clarifying assumptions.
1: I think that's, I think there's a, I think there's a lot to what you just said. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I would not disagree with anything you just said. I think that makes, I think that's a useful way to think about it.
0: And that leaves me frustrated. I, on the one hand, I love it. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm all about testing assumptions. Sure. I love it, but in, in preparing for this and in thinking about, what I wanted to ask you, I was, th- I was thinking, what if I have a firm moral conviction about something?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a moral conviction, mm-hmm. right? Like with the boy who got shot, like-, like the boy who got shot. That was a perfect example. What if I have a perfect, and so Name it. I can tell you that I, Gene Ladding, to talk yeah. to the man who shot him, and learn about his childhood and his fears. I yeah. could do all of that. His yeah. assumptions, I could I could dig into why he thought it was the right thing to do and see the world from his perspective. I grew up mm-hmm. reading a lot of books, so it's easy for me to jump into somebody else's shoes and look at mm-hmm. it and see their lens. But where the rubber meets the road is, now that I understand him, and I know maybe he had no evil intent or what have you, there's still this dead kid. Or yeah. they're still the target display is still up there. And so yeah. the question is, and let's go, let's with him, let's leave him, let's go to the target display. The mm-hmm. target display is still up there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if things, I mean, think, right. So I think, offense my culture is not hurt feelings, it's a sure. moral imperative for me.
1: I think that I so I think you are asking all the right questions and I think that what I'm saying is actually not the idea is that you wow
0: That was energizing. We really only touched the surface of this discussion. What are my takeaways? First of all, it's just hard. Navigating today's complex world where everyone has an opinion and a voice means we can't just rely on some definitive way of understanding each other or doing things together. Those of us who want certainty in these times and in our relationships would do well to learn how to stretch our capacity to tolerate differences. I was surprised to discover that I was actually hoping she would give us some hidden solution in how to even work with people. I didn't get that, but what I got was a heavy dose of realism. It's just hard. And if we want to get along with others and form a community, it takes work and a willingness to listen to people with different points of view. As she emphasized again and again, we need to define our terms to make sure we're even talking about the same thing. You've probably been in conversations where people are just arguing and debating and they're not even talking about the same thing. Second, we just have to be willing to be wrong. That's her whole discussion about the 100% and going into confidence and checking out our confidence rather than our certainty. There are many things we could be wrong about. We could misinterpret what the other person means. We could misinterpret their intentions or why they are saying what they are saying. We could be wrong about the facts or what led to the debate. Now, I know that many people were raised to never be wrong and never admit that they were wrong. If that's you, then this will be doubly hard. I personally had to learn how to say, I don't know, or I'm just wrong, Thanks for correcting me. I know my clients who know how to do this are much better off for it. And I know that those who don't know how to do it don't realize that people talk about it behind their back sometimes for not being able to own up, that they are just wrong. Third, we have to be willing to just plow our way through difficult discussions. As I said to Elena, We just have to trust the process that these painful discussions will yield common ground that will be worth having in the end. Those are my takeaways. You can learn more about me and my work at leadingconsciously.com. Our program, Pathfinders, Leadership for Inclusion and Equity, addresses the need for us to know how to co-create a better world. For more information about what we do, see the link below. Thank you for joining me.